The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for um, the church. We thank you for this Trinity season that we're, we're wrapping up. We thank you for all the things you're doing for the gospel. And we ask your blessing on this time of Sunday school. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are continuing through the articles. We um, got through number 30. And so we only have nine more to go. One week we did get through like five or six, but I don't know if this will be this week again. So we're probably close to the end of the year before we're all done with this. So let's, uh, let's get right in. We are, we, are talk, we are in the middle of the discussion on the sacraments. And what's going to happen is the discussion about the sacraments is going to kind of flow very logically into the discussion about the church in general. So we are on page 609 in the prayer book. If you've got your, uh, your 1928 prayer book, page number 609. Um, if you're uh, hanging out in the 2019, what page do you got there, uh, Bob, for the 2019? 784. 784. All right. Yeah, the, the, the 2019 um, articles are the um, kind of original official ones of the Anglican Communion, whereas in the, two, the, 20, the um, 1928, rather, they're the American 1801 version. So there's a couple of places where things get, um, they're a little bit different. So if, if, if we come across one of those, please please point that out to me there, Bob. <laughs> but what I like is that the print's bigger. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> and and for, 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 whatever, for, for whoever, just kind of as a parenthetical um, one of the Continuum Diocese um, does sell large print versions. I think Magda has one of those if anybody needs the large print. I, 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 that's a really nice deluxe version, though. Um, I, I need to get one of those for the 2019 myself for diocesan functions. Okay. Well, not the 2019. You have the, the large print, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Anyway, article number 31 of the one oblation of Christ finished upon the cross. Page 609, article 31. The offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual. And there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. Wherefore, the sacrifice of masses in the which it was commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the quick and the dead to have remission of pain and guilt were blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. Okay, so we're finishing up the discussion of the, 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 um, the Lord's Supper. So you can see how that one oblation of Christ upon the cross being emphasized here is important to that um, conversation. The big thing going on here is that in kind of common medieval piety, they believed that the Holy Communion, the Mass, was a re-sacrificing of Christ on the cross. Now, again, to be fair, at the Council of Trent, which comes after articles, the, the Catholic Church did condemn that view. The, the Roman Catholic Church said, no, we are not re-sacrificing Christ, we're just representing the one sacrifice. Kind of a really a really narrow line of distinction, but a very important one theologically. You know, Roman Catholics today would not say that the Mass is a new sacrifice of Christ, but they would insist, they would maintain that it is a sacrifice for the welfare of the living and the repose of the dead. 
And the reformers would still say that that particular theology of the sacrifice of the mass is problematic because Christ's one oblation took care of all that. So the mass, you cannot speak of the mass, the sacrifice of the mass in that way to the point where, where generally the reformers would not like the term mass because of those connotations. This is one of those areas where um, kind of in our, in our Anglo-Catholic past, um, we had to depart from some of what's going on in the wider Anglo-Catholic world. You know, we've got um, in the hallway, excuse me, in the hallway we've got the uh, Manual for Priests, which is kind of a supplementary liturgical text that's common among Anglo-Catholics, um, printed in the 20th century. And it's got one of the prayers in the Manual of Priests is this a prayer to be done with the altar party after communion. And what does it do? Um, it talks about, you know, Lord, this, this sacrifice that we have made for the welfare of the living and repose of the dead, may it be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I had to say, guys, we really can't pray that prayer. That's theologically problematic. <laughs> because what does that, first of all, what does that repose of the dead imply? That clause of the repose of the dead. It implies the doctrine of purgatory. Because why is the sacrifice of the Mass so important in Roman Catholic circles up until really recently? Well, because you're saying the Mass so that souls can be relieved from purgatory. That's the repose of the dead part. You know, the implication there being that the people we're praying for are not yet at rest. They're, they're suffering in purgatory. You know, so... So that's one of the things that we had that, 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 that um, the reformers did find problematic. Um, the welfare of the living, yeah, sure, sure, there's absolutely benefits for the living, um, for, the, for the Holy Communion, but they're not propitiatory benefits. They're not atonement-level benefits. They're not, they're not having this for the sake of being saved by it. Does that make sense? Um, so, um, there's a couple of places in our communion liturgy that does, a, that, that does um, talk about this. So, in the Holy Communion section on page um, 80, so this is the consecration. Let's, so, this is the beginning of the consecration on page 80 in the Holy Communion. We say, we see all glory, and by the way, this has been a constant prayer in all of the classical editions of the Book of Common Prayer in the 2019 this is in the um, Anglican Standard Text. This is um, a modernization of this prayer. Um, so it says, All glory be to thee, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for that thou of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there, by his one oblation of himself, once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. So we're, what we're saying from the get-go in our communion liturgy is that the kind of sacrifice that was commonly said about the Mass in the Middle Ages is not what we're doing. This is not a sacrifice for the welfare of the living and the repose of the dead. This is not a propitiatory, I'm totally mispronouncing that, my, 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 my apologies, a propitiatory sacrifice. So is there a sense where we can still speak of, in the context of our Reformed liturgy, of the Mass as sacrifice? Yes. Let's skip over to page 81. Um, 
about halfway down that third, that third paragraph. Well, no, actually, let's start with that third paragraph. So the end, we earnestly desire thy fatherly goodness, mercifully to accept what? This our sacrifice of what? Praise and thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving, most humbly beseeching thee to grant that by the merits and death of thy son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and all thy whole church may obtain remission of our sins and all of the benefits of his passion. So we are talking, we are saying that it is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, but not an atonement sacrifice, right? Not a propitiatory sacrifice. Let's skip down a little bit more. Although we are unworthy through our manifold sins to offer thee any sacrifice, Yet we beseech thee to accept this, our bounden duty in service, not weighing our merits, but parting our offenses. Actually, it's a little bit before that. I'm sorry. I went a little bit too far. Um, and here we, we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. Does, this, does that language sound familiar other than, of course, our Holy Communion liturgy? This is what Paul says. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. So, so these are the senses where we can still talk about communion, about the Mass as a sacrifice, but not in the same way that was common in the, in the Middle Ages and to an extent still in the Roman Church today because Christ's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient as that once-for-all propitiation for our sins, that once-for-all atonement. We are not doing this for the sake of atonement, we are doing this for the sake of communion. Some of this goes back to the different kinds of sacrifices we do see in the Old Testament. Um, we have in, um, at the Passover, at that first Passover, there's that atonement sacrifice where the angel of death passes over. And there is a sense where everything else that happens in the Old Testament points back to the Exodus and back to that first <coughs> Passover. There's also, once a year, the, the Day of Atonement sacrifice. And the whole, the book of Hebrews, the whole argument in the book of Hebrews is Christ has fulfilled what's going on in the Day of Atonement sacrifice. We don't have that anymore because Christ took care of that. And everything happening in the Day of Atonement sacrifice is pointing to what the Messiah would do. And now the Messiah has done. But there's also other kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. There are friendship offerings, peace offerings, thanksgiving offerings, remembrance offerings, all these ways that the children of Israel would, would um, build their fellowship with the Lord, build their fellowship with each other, offer thanksgiving, offer praise, and that took the place of a sacrifice as well. And we can see in our Lord's sacrifice, there is a sense of all of those things together. And in communion, we, we are... We are doing the same kind of things as in the Thanksgiving offerings, the, the fellowship offerings, the remembrance offerings, but not the atonement offerings. Questions, comments on that, um, on, on Article 31 and that whole concept? Well, okay, there we go. So that, that's a big difference between the reformers and the medieval church and to a certain extent the Roman church here continuing on. Um, article number 32 of the marriage of priests. Okay, so now we are kind of leaving aside the, um, the uh, uh, sacramental theology. Now we're moving into ecclesiology, the theology of the church. Of the marriage of priests. 
bishops, priests, and deacons are not commanded by God's law either to vow the estate of single life or to abstain from marriage. Therefore, it is lawful for them, as for all other Christian men, to marry at their own discretion, as they shall judge the same to serve better to godliness. Okay, so we all know what this is addressing, right? Priestly celibacy, which had become um, the standard discipline in the Western Church by the Reformation, long before the Reformation. Um, It's important to note that this was always seen by the Roman Catholic Church as a discipline, not as a dogma or a doctrine. The difference being is that they, they would not say that it is completely unlawful according to God's law for priests to be married or for married men to become priests, more technically saying. But they would say that the discipline of this church is that we don't ordain married men to the priesthood and priests cannot get married. There was some good reasoning for that when it happened. And some of that was that um, some of these men, especially when they would become bishops, were turning the church into almost like a hereditary, um, almost like a hereditary fiefdom. So, okay, dad was the bishop. Now he was, now his sons were going to become priests and he was going to give his sons those, pre, those, those lands, um, the, the, the church lands, the church property, the, the, um, the benefits. Um, there was a lot of simony going on in, in families. And so that was part of the reason why the Western church did have as a discipline priestly celibacy for a long time. However, there was also a doctrinal element to it as well. There was this view that the married estate was somehow less than honorable and that it was better to be chaste and single, to be celibate, um, because there was this view that sexual relations were inherently icky. Um, A very technical doctrinal term there, icky. Um, (laughs) um, And so, so, but but what what ended up happening, and, and this was well known by the time of the Reformation, is that, okay, these priests may have not been married, but they were certainly not celibate. And, and we, we see that continuing on today. Um, you know, there are parts of the, the Roman Catholic world where, um, I mean, you know the scandal's going on. I mean, we don't have to get into details here. There's no, there's no need to get into those details. And so one of the things that the reformers all insisted was that priestly celibacy is really a matter of indifference. I mean, it's not a matter of the doctrine of the church. It's not a better estate. Um, But rather, um, as it says here, um, as all other Christian men, priests, priests, bishops, and deacons are free to marry at their own discretion, as they shall judge the same to better serve, to serve better to godliness. Marriage is supposed to be sanctifying for us, right? We talked about that in our homily two weeks ago. Um, And so it's a good thing to get your sanctification that way. Now, that doesn't mean it is a necessary thing. I think in the Protestant world, we've kind of moved to the other side of the coin, where there's this tendency that if a, if a minister, if a person is not married, they somehow are incomplete, and that um, this, this terrible misinterpretation of First of Timothy 3 saying that, well, it says husband of one wife, therefore you must be a husband to be ordained. Um, no, that's not what it says. <laughs> that is taking it out of context. <laughs> um, but, but it really is a, a, matter of, a matter of what shall serve better 
to godliness as the person called. You know, St. Paul, he said that in some ways it was better um, for the sake of the ministry not to be married. Why? Well, because you don't have to worry about taking care of your family, um, the material thing. You're not divided in your attention. You can, you can totally devote yourself to the church. You know, I, I, I wish I had known about um, Cranmer House, the, the seminary, the REC seminary, when I was a single man. I had the, the luxury to do a full-time MDiv while still supporting myself as, a, as an appraiser when I, was an er, when, I was early, when I was in my postulancy and early in my priesthood. Um, that's a lot harder now that I'm a married man with two little kids. A lot harder to, go to, to do continuing schooling. Um, you know, so that would have been a lot better. You know, that's, that's a good practical reason. And there are some people that are not called to, to, to the married state. Um, so so that, that's the thing there. In the Eastern Church, they, they, they never made priestly celibacy the norm. Um, they did now for the monastic vocation. Um, you do see some married monastics in the Anglican world. That's a little weird because generally monasticism was always a single thing. Um, so that's, I think that's one of those areas where sometimes in the Anglican world we want to have our cake and eat it too. Um, and that's really against the, 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 the pattern of the church history. In the Eastern church, they always, well, not always, but at least for probably a good 1,000, 1,500 years, for a very, very long time, all the bishops were chosen from the monastics. A large part of that in their reasoning was what St. Paul said about the practical issues of it being, there's some practical advantages to being single. Um, but I think there's also a little bit of kind of lingering um, views that the monastic life is holier, and it is not. It is not necessarily holier, it's just a different calling. Uh, so um, both the, the Eastern Orthodox and the Romans, when they do have married clergy, they will ordain a married man, but they will not let an ordained man marry. Our church has always, um, has never had that particular discipline. And part of that is because we cannot see in scriptures that that is the norm. So we do not bind the conscience where scripture does not bind the conscience. And therefore, priests may marry. Married men may become priests um, and deacons and whatnot. Uh, questions, comments on, on such a thing? Yeah, one of one of the things that um, you, we really get a double-edged sword in the modern era. Um, so once upon a time, the the church did not. None of the churches, pretty much before the twentieth century, none of the churches permitted contraception. What ended up meaning is that Catholic family and Catholics were always a holdout on that, even though a ton of Catholics practice it officially. It's against their teaching. Um, so what ended up happening was until recently, Catholics had huge families. And one of the benefits of huge families is that you have enough children that there's not the, the pressure for all of your children to have grandchildren, right? All parents want their kids to, to give them grandchildren, right? <laughs> well, if you've got 10 kids, you've got some spare kids. Now, you know, I mean, this is so crass to say it this way, but you do. You have some spare kids that can go become monks and priests and that sort of thing, which was common in the Catholic world until relatively recently, really until the 1960s. Nowadays, that's not the case because the Catholic world, even though 
contraception is, is against the teaching, Catholics do it anyway. And so you, you have a major dearth of the priesthood. What that's also led to, um, this is one of those things that, gosh, you really don't want to have to talk about this, but we kind of have to. Um, a lot of the scandals going on with the, the homosexual abuses in the Catholic priesthood are because of this. When that societal shift happens, where you're not having as many um, children and therefore there's, there's less priests, what ends up happening is that you have this large amount of guys seeking that single priesthood who have same-sex attraction, and a lot of them somehow think that, okay, if I get ordained, that's going to magically fix this issue, which it didn't. It didn't. I mean, sometimes when, when the, the Lord, some of the times the Lord's grace is that he does remove various temptations. Um, one of the priests that I follow, um, uh, Father Matt Kennedy, they used to be in Cana, now they're, they're just in ACNA. But, but Matt talks about how when he came to the Lord, all of a sudden his, his, his um, addiction to cigarettes disappeared overnight. And it was something that he hated about himself. He hated that he was addicted to that. And the Lord took that away overnight. And he says, you know, if I was going back, I'd ask the Lord to take some other stuff away that's more important than that. <laughs> but that's what the Lord did. I mean, the Lord, I mean so that sort of thing happens. Um, you know, the, the, the rock star Alice Cooper speaks about a conversion experience he had. And the Lord took away his addiction to alcohol overnight. So sometimes that happens, but oftentimes that doesn't happen. You know, you, your sins that you struggle with, your addictions, your, 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 your vices often remain. And the, the Roman church has been reaping that problem in, in, in their seminaries and in their priesthood. And it's to the point of terrible scandals. Pray for our Roman friends because, you know, they've got to deal with that. And it's not that there is proportionately greater numbers, but they created an environment that fostered that, unfortunately. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, sad, it's a sad thing. And so one of the, like you, Magda was saying, she, she just disappeared, but as Magda was saying, one of the things that Pope Francis is considering, um, that he's been encouraged to consider is relaxing that discipline. Uh, the traditionalists in the Catholic world think that's the, the worst thing in the world. Um, Francis is everything far from a traditionalist. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Um, I'll, I'll let y'all make that decision on your own there, you know, far be it for me to judge the Lord's servant, you know, the, the, someone else's servant on this, you know, this is not, not my relationship with the Lord, not my communion, not my problem. Um, but, but, but yeah, that is something that's being considered. I think it would be met with large, um, opposition in, in many sectors of the Catholic world, but, but maybe not. Um, yeah, so that, that, that is that. Um, anything else on um, article number 32, the marriage of priests? Um, I, I will tell you about our diocesan policy because we only have about three minutes. Um, the bishop does not like to ordain single men, but that's a very practical thing. He's seen too often um, single priests dating parishioners, which leads to a bad conflict of interest. Um, you can't have that. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad business. That's bad pastoral business. So instead, basically, what he says now is, um, if a if a if a young man um, is believes he's called to celibacy, the bishop's fine to ordain him that way. If a man who's single does get ordained, 
and they and there's a love interest in the parish one of them gots to move <laughs> you can't stay like that so but uh, so that that's why the bishop is a little hesitant to ordain single men not because he thinks that some men are not called to singlehood but because of those practical reasons um, yeah. but, you know, at, at the Shoda house my understanding from talking to when before I came here we had two young seminarians from our parish at St. Lawrence yeah. and they said you talked about enforcing morality they said if you are married and they catch you fooling around you're gone yeah yeah if you are single and they catch you fooling around you are gone yeah you're supposed to be you know it's supposed to be chaste right you're supposed to be monogamous and chaste yep and this but that if you uh and the same goes if there's any uh same sex thing you're gone. Yeah. I mean, they expect you to walk the walk. Yep. And, and that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. You know, and, and our and our, our our bishop is is pretty pretty um, uh, good at enforcing those types of issues as well. You know, I, I know some men who you know not not in the Shota House, but they were at other seminaries. You know, they 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 were not chased, and they ended up you know for whatever reason they ended up transferring. Their bishop allowed them to transfer seminaries instead. Um, yeah, it's probably not the best case. So I, I, I applaud Nishota's house's stance on that. I applaud, um, yeah, I mean, by the time you're at seminary, you, you, bet, you better have some control over those issues. Otherwise, you're not, you're not ready to be pursuing holy orders. You know, and there's, and in this, in our culture today, stuff certainly happens, but Priests and deacons, and especially bishops, are called to a higher standard. Um, and while that's a standard for all Christians, there's stricter consequences for those that are that are clergy or those that are pursuing holy orders. We are at eleven o'clock, so I will see you all um, either in mass or on Wednesday. And I believe after Thanksgiving, we are probably going to restart some Wednesday night classes, just a quick little uh, four-week Advent um, deal on that. So uh, be keeping that in mind. God bless you all.